Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a free money Thursday here on Home and Home, radio.com sports original brought to you by ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash enter free money on Thursday because Nick Costos from You Better You Bet coming up in the 9 o'clock hour. He'll tell you where to put your money in the college games this weekend as well as the NFL and tonight's big one between Kansas City and Denver. Also, Brad Evans joining us from Yahoo Sports. All the fantasy knowledge from Brad. He'll tell us who to start, who not to start, and who you might want to snag that still could be on the waiver wire. A lot to get to today. The weather has moved out of the East Coast after battering my town in the entire region, but it did leave a mark on the ALCS. Who does it help? Who does it hurt? We'll discuss that later on, as well as some really sad news from the sports world. A boxer, Patrick Day, you may not know the name, but a terrific young fighter and a wonderful young man died yesterday as a result of a Saturday night fight in Chicago uh, we're going to talk to Chris Mannix from Sports Illustrated. He hosts the Boxing Podcast at Sports Illustrated, as well as the crossover, which focuses on the A. Mannix coming up at 8.30. Nobody covers boxing better than Chris Mannix. So we are all set today, and we'll, of course, talk about Jalen Ramsey, who is, quote, overjoyed to be out there in L.A. I hate mornings. That's what the coffee mug says, because I truly do. I'm Dave Briggs, home in Connecticut, Ross Tucker home in Pennsylvania. Uh, Ross, we're going to get to all that in a minute, but I like to throw you a curveball when we start these mornings. And one thing has been on my mind for the last 24 hours, 36 hours, Jennifer Aniston. Why? Because Jennifer Aniston joined Instagram about two days ago. She broke the Guinness Book of World Records for fastest ever to 1 million followers in less than six hours. And less than two days later, she's over 11 million followers. You are wisdom, smart, Princeton, well-educated, just a brilliant guy. So I want you to explain the phenomenon that is Jennifer Aniston that was incredible in Friends. And she is beautiful and lovely and seems like a nice person. But how do you explain the global phenomenon of someone that's, generally speaking, a B-actress in 2019? Well, thank you for the kudos, Dave. That's always a great way to start every day. Any day that someone tells me I'm brilliant before 8.05 a.m. Eastern time is a good day. By the way, I'm the exact opposite of you. My mug would say I love mornings. Uh, Uh, You know what I hate? I hate about 2.30 in the afternoon unless I got a nap. That's what I hate. Or I really hate about 8 o'clock at night if I didn't get a nap. Um, I start to fade at that point. Ah. So love mornings. Like I I am my most productive, my best self from 
4.30 a.m., 5 a.m. maybe, till noon. Everything goes downhill after that for me. So it's a good thing this show is 8 to 10.30 on the Radio.com app and Radio.com slash home because this is my time. These are my hours. This This is it. Well, I should add a caveat, Ross, because I think I used to like mornings before the other job over there at the cable news network. It's the one 30 wake up that makes me hate mornings. That's more the middle of the night. And it just sends me down a deep, dark path, but thank <laughs> God for coffee. Um, truly. I think hey, I, I actually used to like mornings. So what's funny, Dave, since you told me I was brilliant, do you realize until 20 seconds ago, I never knew that CNN stood for cable news network. <laughs> that well, I, I never knew that. I Twitter never even thinks like, it stands, thought about it. <laughs> Twitter thinks it stands for a lot of other things. Uh, I think they substitute in communist and Clinton and a lot of other not nice things. But, um, all right, we, we, we were talking about mornings. And speaking of mornings, the morning show is the new show by Jennifer Aniston on Apple TV, which, by the way, is fantastic. So I know you have solved the riddle that is Jennifer Aniston and how she gets to a million followers in just over five hours and 11 million followers in less than 48 hours. You can explain that for all of us, right? Yeah, well, I, I can explain it, I think, partially, which okay. is that I think that the the biggest people on Instagram, I mean, there's obviously a lot of young people, but I think Instagram, when I see Instagram, Dave, when I scroll through my feed, it's primarily my buddies' wives, okay? It's <laughs> women between the ages of 30 and 50. That's just the people I Mm -hmm. follow maybe, but they certainly post the most. That is all my buddies from high school and college, their wives love to post anytime they are out to dinner or with friends. They want everybody to make sure they know that they're having a great time. They also post anything their kids ever do. And it's funny because evidently the Instagram algorithm is such that the more you post, the more people see your posts, like you're at the top of people's feeds. Because I'm not going to say their names on the show, but there's some wives of my buddies that every time I pull up Instagram, I start to scroll through, it's two or three of the same wives, and I just stop scrolling (laughs) through. I I just give up because I just don't care that much. But here's my theory on Jennifer Aniston. When we were... What, 12 years old through 24 years old or whatever? I don't know when Friends was popular. Mm-hmm. But during that time period, Jennifer Aniston, a.k.a. Rachel on Friends, was an icon. She, she was someone from a fashion standpoint and from how she conducted herself she was someone that everyone kind of looked up to, aspired to be. And then she went on to date Brad Pitt and whatever. And I think people in our generation, probably 10 years younger than me, up to 10 years older than me. So I'm going to say 30 to 50, my sister, who's four years older, they really looked up to her. She was sort of a, a cultural icon for women of that age group. And so they looked to her almost for fashion advice, for all that stuff. And her being on Instagram, for them, it's like the same reason they're on Instagram, to get fashion tips, to see what their friends do, 
And so I would imagine that out of those 11 million people, it spread like wildfire among women age 30 to 50, and they do a great job of spreading the word quickly about someone being on Instagram or someone they can follow. So that is my theory. Is that out of the 11 million, 8 million of them are women between the age of 30 and 50 who have long looked up to Rachel from Friends, a.k.a. Jennifer Aniston, from when they were in their formative years. So sort of the way I look to you for football wisdom. That makes sense. Look, she's an attractive woman. Again, seems lovely. I've just never understood how she is still so iconic. Yes, Friends was everything. Um, but since then, I mean, Office Space was amazing, but she was barely in it. Uh, the breakup was good. Uh, what else has she been in? Can but you even name another gen? like crazy popular um, among young oh. people right now on Netflix or something? Are you the one that told me that? Yeah, I, I think you could argue Friends is more popular today in terms of its reach than it was then because, yes, you have our age group who loves it and knows every episode. My 11 and 13-year-olds are obsessed with the show. They know every episode, every character. They can play the Friends trivia games and do very, very well uh, in, with, with us. So, yes, I guess it all makes sense then. I guess we have solved the mystery that yeah, is Yeah, you just Jennifer answered Aniston. your own question. Boom. That is the but, brilliance that you get from me. I take the see? information that you already gave me a couple weeks ago, and I regurgitate it, and that is, that is the <laughs> – this is like high school and college all over again. I just take other people's information. I do a good job of writing it down and putting it back out there. B plus, A minus. Nice to be with you. Mind blown emoji. Name one Jennifer Aniston movie before we move back to the sports world. Oh, I can't that you wouldn't have. Already, Office Space <laughs> is the one that I would have said. Office Space. Right. And she's barely and there's in There's other right? ones I've seen. I just don't remember the names of them. You know what I mean? Like, they weren't impactful. Yeah, I, nothing is coming to mind. Let's see if the millennials can give us a nice list on that. But meanwhile, let's move to the NFL where Jalen Ramsey is out in L.A. But first, we love this Thursday night matchup. I don't know that you can get better Thursday night football than Chiefs and Broncos. And it's surprising given the start for the Denver Broncos, who looked abysmal who could not move the football, who could not sack the quarterback, who could not turn it over. Vic Fangio looked like he couldn't improve this defense at all. And suddenly, Kansas City, the world beater. Mahomes had thrown 10 touchdowns, no interceptions. They go to Denver tonight, just a three-point favorite. So surprising. Go back a couple of weeks. I think Kansas City is a 17-point favorite against Denver. The Chiefs 4-2. and two. The Broncos two and four. Vic Fangio, the new Broncos head coach, who you know as the Chicago Bears defensive coordinator from the past, he talked about Patrick Mahomes and made an interesting analogy and comparison about the phenomenon that is the KCQB. Listen. 80s and 90s, he's that guy, like Aaron Rodgers has been for the last 12, 14 years, however many years he's been starting. He's kind of that guy. He's the Great passer, the great improviser, um, <clears throat> plays with a lot of athletic arrogance, which is a compliment. You know, he's very confident in his ability. He's very poised. Um, 
doesn't get rattled. And he's got an arm that, you know, is really, really good. And he can make all the throws they're asking him to make and some that they're not even asking him to make that just show up in his improvisations. So, you know, and he's good in the pocket, has great pocket feel. You can tell he's a gamer. You know, the guy is really, really special. Comparing Patrick Mahomes, and I don't think you heard the name there, but Vic Fangio comparing him to John Elway, who, of course, I believe is the greatest quarterback of all time, or at least was until Tom Brady changed everything it is that we know about quarterbacks today. And athletic arrogance, what a fantastic term we will discuss. But first, let's hear from John Elway on the comparison. John, is that a fair uh, comparison? Well, it's very flattering because, uh, and I appreciate that, but, uh, you know, Patrick Mahomes is a tremendous quarterback and he's proven that and still playing great. So we got our hands full on Thursday night and, but look forward to having him come in here. It's, it'll be a great test for us. And, you know, if we can get this one, we can get right back in the hunt and, and get there close. And so that's what we've been looking for. We've got ourselves back in a position to be able to get back in the hunt. So hopefully we can play our best game on Thursday night. Now credit. Vic Fangio for the athletic arrogance term. I think that's a fantastic one. But, Ross, what do you make of the comparison between Elway, another athletic, strong-armed quarterback who played baseball uh, at the same time he played football? And what do you make of the fact that Kansas City goes there just a three-point favorite, and this is as close to an early season must-win as you can have? By the way, Dave, just as an aside, We're the Millers is a pretty good movie. Along came huh? Polly. Yeah, we're the Millers. Really? Along came Polly. Don't know. Uh, yeah, a couple different uh, movies Jennifer huh. Anderson was in. As really? for the Elway, I love. First of all, I love Vic Fangio. I love the term <laughs> athletic arrogance. I'm going to use that a lot um, moving forward. And I think he's exactly right. When I think of Patrick Mahomes, I think of a guy that can make plays that we just don't see other people capable of making. And I remember in the 80s and even in the early 90s thinking John Elway, wow, like on the run, and then he would just go, Foo! and it was unbelievable. And there were other great quarterbacks at the time. Marino certainly was incredible and Joe Montana, et cetera. But Elway was able to do things with his combination of athleticism and arm strength that other people just couldn't do. And then the next guy that really jumped out to me, I think you could argue Brett Favre too in that regard. It might have gone, in my mind, it might have gone Elway, then Brett Favre, then Aaron Rodgers, which is insane, by the way, that the Packers had two of these guys back-to-back, and now Patrick Mahomes. Speaking of insane, how could the Packers have Aaron Rodgers and Brett Favre at quarterback for 30 years and win two Super Bowls. Like, are we kidding? And only even get wow. to three Super Bowls? Are we kidding? Top five quarterback for 30 years straight, and you got to three Super Bowls and won two of them? That could be a whole topic for another day. But I, I think I think he's exactly right. I think Fangio, that would be the, the transition in my mind, Dave. It would go from Elway to Favre to Aaron Rodgers to now Patrick Mahomes. He's the next guy that it feels like does things that make your jaw drop. And you also think I've never seen that before. 
Um, I didn't think anybody would, would be able to do the stuff I've seen Aaron Rodgers do. And now Mahomes comes in and might do stuff that's even better. Yeah, it's it's just amazing to watch. I felt the same way with Elway. The rolling left, throwing 50 yards down the field, right, rolling right, throwing left, did things we had never seen anyone done. But now you continue uh, just to raise the bar. And this game, how important is it for Kansas City, given that they've been outplayed, uh, certainly were outplayed by the Lions, lost to the Colts, uh, they they really have struggled to find their way in recent weeks. The the run defense has not been spectacular. Their running game has not been productive. And Patrick Mahomes' ailing ankle clearly is making a difference. And you can bet the Broncos are going to turn it loose and try to put as much pressure on him as possible. How important is this game right now, given the way Kansas City has played and the playbook being out there and how to at least slow down and contain Mahomes with man-to-man defense on those receivers. I really think, Dave, this is a gigantic game for both these teams. I mean, if the Broncos win this one and they get to three and four, in the AFC, they're starting to believe. They're starting to believe Hmm. that they could get a playoff berth. I mean, Buffalo looks like they'll get one of the wild cards, but who else? If the Broncos win this one, they should have every right to think that they can finish 10 and 6, 9 and 7 maybe and get a wild card berth. I I would be feeling that way if I were a Bronco. As for the Chiefs, they lose a third straight. Then you start to have a little bit of a crisis in confidence a little bit. 3 in a row is a lot to lose. You almost eliminate any chance whatsoever. And I don't, I still don't think they have it anyway, but any chance to get the number 1 seed which means you got to win in Foxborough in January. Good luck if you're the Chiefs. Not only that, you allow the Broncos and maybe the Raiders to be nipping at your heels just in the AFC West. And by the way, the quote-unquote formula for beating the Chiefs right now, run the ball and get after them on defense, man-to-man coverage, the, the Broncos actually have a pretty good group to do that. They actually have some pass rushers to get after Mahomes with a four-man rush. They can play man-to-man with Chris Harris and those guys like the other teams have done. And with Royce Freeman and especially Phillip Lindsay, they want to run the ball. I mean, they are going to do the exi- – this is the NFL, okay? If you have a scab in the NFL, they don't let it heal. They just keep picking it. They just keep picking it, picking it, picking it, picking it until you figure out – how to put a Band-Aid on it and cover it so that teams can't keep picking it like the Colts and the Houston Texans did the last couple weeks. I just made that up. Is that an awesome analogy or really gross? Um, It is actually both because you forced me to picture the picking of a scab, but it is actually – it is an accurate description of what you have to do in the NFL. When you see a wound, you can go after. But now I can't unsee the scab – Let's just move to L.A. uh, and talk about Jalen Ramsey, who is overjoyed now to join the Los Angeles Rams. And a couple of his teammates, of course, as you know, uh, Blake Bortles and Dante Fowler, all three of those guys traded from Jacksonville now out there in Los Angeles. Ramsey talked to reporters about his new team and the uh, the difference in energy around this club. Uh, Like I said, I was overjoyed. I was super, super excited. One, I mean, a fresh start and a fresh start, uh, a place like 
L.A. Um, with the culture that I've heard about here, and uh, I'm a young guy still. Everybody around here is kind of young. Uh, I feel like, you know, it'll be a little bit more understanding. Um, so, yeah, I was, just, I was just honestly super excited. I don't know. Words can't really describe it. He could describe the culture here, though. He said, I heard heard the culture here is dope. I can't wait to be a part of it. I can't wait to be able to uh, be myself on and off the field and just help the organization in every way I can. I guess that back injury is doing just fine now that he's with the contender, huh, Ross? Yeah, yeah well, there's a lot to discuss here. Uh, first <laughs> of all, as far as the back injury, yes, it is. And... We could spend a lot of time on this, Dave. We really could. I believe, uh, especially if you are an elite player, that this should now be the formula to get the money you want, to get what you want as a player. Here's why, Dave. Once you report to the team and you're there for rehab for your back injury or whatever, air quotes for the people that aren't watching on the radio.com app or radio.com slash home you're still getting your paycheck every week and they also can't find you so what essentially happens dave is if you do a hold in rather than holding out the team then has no leverage not only that it's more of a disruption if you're holding in than it is if you're holding out so if you want to get traded you want to get a new contract you want whatever I think a hold-in is the better way to do it. Melvin Gordon lost money. He lost money that he'll never get back. Whereas a guy like Jalen Ramsey, he didn't lose a dime. And there was no leverage over him like the Chargers had over Melvin Gordon. It's a much better way to go about it if you have the stomach to do it. Now, I think there are some people that ethically – don't like it. They think, wait a minute, you're going to fake an injury? That's a lack of class. That's disrespectful. And I can respect that. They'd rather have you just hold out and say, I'm withholding services because I'm not going to be there till I get what I want. But you know what? You're ultimately going to get criticized for either one. So why not get criticized for the one where you actually don't lose any money from it? Would be my would be my point on that. As far as what Jalen Ramsey just said, yep. you know, the grass is really green right now, Dave. Let's see what happens if he doesn't get a long-term deal. My guess is they kind of have some parameters or a wink-nod arrangement at least in place there, and that that will get done. So that's probably why he's happy. But he's losing a bunch of money right now because of state income tax, and he's happy to go to a new place a lot of times, that doesn't last real long. Look at Antonio Brown in Oakland. Look at a lot of these. A lot of times, malcontents, T.O., pretty much everywhere he went, Philadelphia, Dallas, people that are unhappy, they tend to be unhappy. They, if they're a malcontent, that tends to manifest itself somewhere else again. We've seen that time and again. I would say the clock is already on Jalen Ramsey. We'll see how truly happy and how long he's truly happy in Los Angeles with the Rams. And part of that may depend on the discussion we had yesterday on Home and Home. For those of you that weren't with the show yesterday, 
is NFL going to succeed in Los Angeles? Is he going to be playing in front of, you know, 50% Rams fans and 50% opposing fans or a, of a quarter of an empty stadium? Jalen Ramsey is very aware of his brand and his celebrity and building that brand and very aware of what the Los Angeles market means to that brand. So perhaps that could convey more happiness for Jalen Ramsey. Uh, probably can make up for that lost money in state income tax now that he is on a much bigger stage of Los Angeles, taken out of what is arguably the worst of NFL markets down there in, in Jacksonville. Looked like a desperate deal for the Rams. Two number ones at a number two. No first-round picks for a five-year period, a team that is still, by our estimation, the third-best team in their division. Looked like a very desperate move. Still does not look like a team you would bet on to win the Super Bowl. But Sean McVay, nonetheless, Happy's organization made that move to grab an elite corner. Here is McVay. I'm excited to get him out here. You know, he's in the process of uh, finalizing, you know, just getting out here and getting going. So very exciting, you know, thing for us. Obviously, you know, the caliber of player that he is, the, the competitiveness, the toughness, uh, really all the traits that you look for in a corner. And, and those are some of the things that are exciting about getting him in here. And, you know, looking forward to really just getting to know the player and, and figuring out, uh, you know, how he's going to help this football team. The one question I can't quite figure out is why not hold on to Marcus Peters and have a much better set of corners there. They traded Peters to Baltimore. The word is they did not want to give him a long-term contract, but you're playing for right now if you're the Rams, if you're trading away two number one. So why not hang on to Peters for this year and lose him to free agency next year? But that uh, will be a question for another day. And Ross, you mentioned Antonio Brown. We're going to get to Antonio Brown in just a minute because an interesting thought from Michael Irvin on the future of, of uh, A.B., Antonio Brown, who's still out of the league and the, Lils, the league's still not saying a whole lot about him, but one Hall of Famer would like to see him back in the league. We'll talk about that in a sec. Right, and I think I would just say as an aside, Dave, I, I think that the Rams felt like if they brought Jalen Ramsey in, knowing he was going to get a long-term deal, that that would not sit real well with Marcus Peters. That's my guess. Mm. And they didn't want that locker room friction. So I think they actually might have been might have been smart in doing that. Speaking of smart, that's what ZipRecruiter is. For those of you that ever need to hire for your companies for any reason, like my wife does for her family propane business, I tell her all the time, ZipRecruiter. That's what the COO Dylan Miskowitz of Cafe El Torre did when he needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job so you get qualif qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. That's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address. ZipRecruiter.com slash enter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash E-N-T-E-R. ZipRecruiter.com slash enter. ZipRecruiter, 
the smartest way to hire. Will Antonio Brown get hired back as an NFL wide receiver? That does not appear the case based on what we're hearing or not hearing from the NFL. No progress, no word on him returning. But there's a Hall of Famer. He knows a thing or two about receiving Michael Irvin on 105.3 The Fan with Sean and RJ, talking about the one team he'd like to see consider bringing back Antonio Brown into the NFL fold. Listen. You know, Mari, he'll get back. You know, you don't find, unless you want to go pick up Antonio Brown. Get us over the top because we, we're not right now. We're hurting. I'll take him over two unproven picks that we don't even know what they are going to be any day. I wish we could have gotten Jalen Ramsey. I, I honestly, I, I don't see any trade out there now that will get us over the top because we, we're not right now. We're hurting really. You know, Mari, he'll get back. You know, you don't find unless you want to go pick up Antonio Brown until he gets back. What do you guys thought on that? No, I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> desperation, desperation makes you start thinking about a lot of things. Like hey, we we ain't got no time to be sitting here riding a high horse like we too good for this and we too good for that. We need some. H-E-L-P right now. Some real help. I don't know. <laughs> when we find help, we, I don't care what, what kind of media relations coming with it or public relations nightmare come with it or wind can cure some little thing. I don't care what we say. I have absolutely. Maybe we should go pick them up for a week or two. I don't know what to do here. But I'm telling you, I am worried about this game right now. Okay, we'll save the discussion for the game later, but the notion of bringing back Antonio Brown into the NFL, the Cowboys have taken some chances on some players. You remember Greg Hardy, they stood by Zeke Elliott off some, uh, through some allegations. Would that be the dumbest thing that the Cowboys could do, or should they consider A.B. with Amari Cooper hurting? Absolutely not. Uh, Jerry Jones might do it. He is a... Uh, any publicity is good publicity guy, but after all the negativity he got for Greg Hardy, I'd be very surprised if he would do this. They just need Amari Cooper to get healthy. Agree. I, let's just, I think we need to finish this investigation, figure out exactly what happened with Antonio Brown. Let that civil lawsuit play its way through the Florida courts before anyone takes a chance on Antonio Brown. That being said, I do think we will see Antonio Brown back in the NFL, if not this year, certainly by next year. Just too big a need at the receiver position. Coming up, we're going to talk to Chris Mannix of Sports Illustrated about the death of the boxer Patrick Day at just 27 years old. He's the third boxer to die as a result of a traumatic brain injury in the ring this year. Mannix, right after a quick break here on Home and Home. Twenty-seven-year-old super welterweight boxer Patrick Day, the third boxer to die as a result of a traumatic brain injury suffered in the ring. Day died yesterday. Uh, the fight happened Saturday night in Chicago. Charles Conwell knocked him out in the tenth round. What is happening in the sport of boxing? Let's talk about it with Chris Mannix from Sports Illustrated, who hosts the boxing podcast on SI, as well as the crossover basketball NBA podcast on Sports Illustrated. Chris, good to have you, Dave Briggs and Ross Tucker. Lou DeBella, the promoter, says 
It is a time for a call to action. What is happening here and what's that call to action? Well, look, it's it's tragic that in the last few months we've been dealing with the kind of deaths that you just don't want to see in boxing, whether it's Maxim Dadashev. Back in July, there was another fighter in Argentina that died a week later, and now you have Patrick Day. Uh, the fact is that there's probably nothing that can make boxing truly safe. The brain was not meant to be rattled on a regular basis as it is in boxing. But to Lou's point, and I've talked to Lou about this extensively uh, this week, there certainly are things that can be done to make the sport safer. I thought in the last couple of days, the California State Athletic Commission made a solid move in announcing that no fighter and no contest would be, would be able to take place in California where the fighter weighs in at 15% more than the weight on fight night that he did at the weigh-in, which effectively combats excessive dehydration and weight cuts, which can contribute to brain injuries down the line. I think there's more that can be done. I think you can be, have stricter rules against banned substance testing. You could have year-round testing for every fighter because – the day that a fighter gets killed in the ring and his opponent tests positive for a banned substance, that creates a whole new set of problems. I think you can have rules against sparring. I think any fighter will tell you that sparring is where a lot of the damage gets done before the fight. You can have mandatory MRIs, two per year for every fighter. These are simple things that I think could be done that might be able to mitigate some of the damage that we're seeing done in the boxing ring. Chris, I, I know you're not a doctor, but I'm, I'm curious, what, what did he exactly die from and the other fighters as well? What are they technically dying of? Well, it's a traumatic brain injury, and I don't think any one of them is exactly the same, but it's something happens in that fight that causes a severe brain bleed or some form of brain damage, all of them that required surgery, at different points and all of them which left at least the most recent ones which left these fighters in a coma now some fighters come out of these comas uh, i did a story earlier this year on a boxer named daniel franco who was involved in, with a traumatic brain injury in a fight back in 2017 he won his battle in the hospital he was in a coma he survived brain surgery and he came out of it and he's trying to live a normal life right now but they're all when it comes to specifics Draw a little bit different, but it boils down to a traumatic brain injury suffered in the ring. So here's the next question then, Chris, because I didn't actually see the fight, but I think I read where he got knocked down in the fourth round, the eighth round, or whatever. You know, to equate it to football, everything I've ever heard is that if you get a second concussion in a short amount of time, that's what can lead to serious, serious complications, which is why the NFL has the concussion protocol that they have, why they do everything that they do. I guess I'm wondering in these instances, and again, I know you're not a doctor, and if I'm putting you in a bad spot, I'm just, I'm just asking. Um, is, it, is there a possibility that these guys are suffering a concussion in the fourth round or the eighth round or whatever, and then they suffer another one 20 minutes later in the fight or 30 minutes later in the fight. And that's what leads to this. And if that's the case, can they do something to the point where if a guy gets knocked down, like, I don't know what they can do, but something where 
if they suspect a concussion or if a guy gets knocked down, maybe stopping fights earlier so that there's less of a chance of multiple concussions in the same fight? Well, they, they absolutely can and should do that. I mean, that becomes the discretion of not just the referee who is there looking at the guy who gets knocked down, gets up, and it's his judgment as in the immediate moment as to whether the fight that can, can continue, but also the doctor that's immediately in the corner afterwards. The doctor needs to take maybe longer looks at these guys and determine just how healthy they are. And the final you know, part of all this is the corner man itself, himself. I mean, this, there's a trainer named Buddy McGirt who was in the corner for Maxime Dadasha. And Maxime, of course, died after going 11 rounds in his fight. Buddy is, still beats himself up over, should I have stopped that fight earlier? Should I have taken it out of a round earlier? What would have happened if I had done that? I think trainers need to take, uh, you know, maybe a longer look at these guys and see if they're hurt. I don't necessarily think it's directly connected to knockdowns because sometimes you can have a knockdown where a concussion isn't suffered. You have a guy that's caught off balance or a guy that's caught just clean on the chin and he's not hurt at all. It's just what they call a flash knockdown. But if a guy is hurt by a significant knockdown, I think that, yes, that there should be longer looks taken at these guys in between rounds. Talking to Chris Maddox from Sports Illustrated, host of the Boxing Podcast on SI. Chris, you talked about some of the things you'd like to see, whether it's the extreme measures that these guys go to to make weight or it's the MRI or some of the other things you're seeing in California. You're suggesting that. What about the fighters? What about the promoters? What are they saying? Look, promoters, of course, are shaken up by this. And Lou DiBella has always kind of been, at times, sort of a moral compass of the sport. He, he gets very emotional when things like this happen. Fighters, though, will tell you that as, as, as bad as this stuff is, it doesn't dissuade them from boxing. And it's not going to stop another generation of fighters to get into boxing. I wrote about this this week. And look, boxers don't come from the middle class. They don't even come from the lower class. They come from below the poverty line, where boxing for them is oftentimes the only way out. I mean, a lot of these fighters are not, they're great athletes for their size, but they're very small in size. If Floyd Mayweather wasn't a boxer, I don't know what a five foot seven, 147 pound athlete would be doing. Wouldn't be playing football. He wouldn't be playing basketball. He wouldn't be playing probably hockey or anything like that. So boxing represents the only way out for these guys. And I had this conversation with my broadcast partner over at the zone, uh, Sergio Mora, who you know comes from East LA and has a lot of friends that grew up in that lifestyle. And he said the same thing to me. He said, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't change anything. Boxing was my way out of my circumstances. And these guys, as tragic as it is, it doesn't change how they feel about boxing. However, Lou DiBella, who we've talked a lot about, he said Patrick Day didn't need to box. He says he comes from a good family. He was smart, educated, had good values, other avenues available to him to earn a living. Lou says he chose to box knowing the inherent risks that every fighter faces. Did he know, do other guys know that they literally could die as a result of a fight? I mean, look... It Dying in the ring, unfortunately, is not a, a new wave. I mean, there are some extremely high-profile examples that most people, even casual fans, know. A lot of people know the story of Ray Mancini and Dooku Kim back in the early 1980s. Uh, Benny Perrette died at the hands of Emil Griffith uh, back uh, earlier than that. And 
you know, almost every year, it seems like we deal with some kind of tragedy uh, like this. So boxers are, are keenly aware of it. Some, most even, uh, use boxing to get out of certain circumstances. And for a guy like Patrick Day, who certainly is an anomaly because of the family that he came from, he just had a passion for it. He had a strong desire to be in boxing. But I don't think you could say that Patrick Day didn't know the risks uh, of what would happen if he got in the ring. Chris, I'm curious because I always hear these people tell me that, you know, 30 years from now, football won't exist because of CTE and the head injuries and stuff. And there's more legislation coming about when people can play football, all that stuff. Is there any concern? Because I, I know that it's been going on for a while, but I can't remember hearing about three guys in a short amount of time like this. And maybe I just don't pay attention. Is there any concern that uh, the government could step in and, and try to... I don't want to say get rid of boxing, but make the regulations so onerous that that boxing would really suffer as a sport. Is there any concern long term about what this might mean? I don't think there's a concern, Ross, that the government or states are going to ban boxing. Um, you know, look, you look at the proliferation of MMA. Uh, there seems to be more of an embrace of combat sports in certain states than ever before. And I have not gotten any sense from anyone that the end of boxing could be coming because of all this. Now, if the government or states want to step in and make things safer, they absolutely should. And as we talked about at the beginning, there are myriad ways that you can do that. I think what it starts with is medical screening. I mean, I think every fighter that gets licensed at the very beginning of their careers should have to have an MRI. And before every fight, they have to have another MRI. So you have a baseline for what a clean MRI looks like for a guy at the beginning of his career, and then you compare that to the, in the subsequent MRIs before their fights. And if there's any discrepancies or any concerns, that guy should not be allowed to fight. Now, you're messing with people's money here, both with fighters and with promoters who make a lot of money off these events, and certainly states that make a lot of money off these events. But if you're really going to walk the walk after talking the talk about fighter safety, that's one thing that I think could be instituted immediately across all states that would immediately make fights safer. So I know, Chris, what my argument is when people say stuff like this about football, but I want to hear your argument as far as boxing. What about the argument of, look, it's a really rough sport. It's a really rough way to try to make a living. But all of these people are doing this under their own volition. They know what the deal is. They don't really need to change anything. These guys just know what they're getting into. I mean, the, the argument for that is that they're seeking a better life. I mean, I, I don't know what other argument that you can make. Now, it can be a deeper conversation about should that be the case? It's more of an indictment on the social system and you know how, how these kids, may, this may be the only way that they have out, but a lot of these kids that I know, and I've been writing about boxing for 10, 15 years now, they all come from just these horrifying circumstances. I mean, Floyd Mayweather growing up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, his father once used him as a human shield against a man pointing a gun at him. Oscar De La Hoya, for years, carried a food stamp around in his pocket to remind him of the life he once led. Manny Pacquiao in the Philippines, he would fight growing up at 12 years old for 100 pesos. That's the equivalent of $2, just so we could have uh, the money to buy rice to feed himself. So 
I, I think the argument for boxing is that these guys need it and need some way to find a way out of the circumstances that they're in. Talking to Chris Maddox, host of the Boxing Podcast on SI, as well as the Crossover Podcast on the NBA. And so much to discuss regarding the NBA and all things basketball on the court. But let's start off the court with the NBA-China controversy. Can Daryl Morey survive in Houston? And what did you make of LeBron James' airball, brick, whatever you want to call it, uh, defense of the situation regarding NBA and China and sounded like a veiled shot at Maury. Yeah, I think Daryl will survive in Houston. Uh, I, I think there was some consideration early on about, you know, what would happen if, if Daryl resigned or if they fired him, but the NBA, it would just be a terrible precedent to take. And certainly for the Rockets, a terrible cave to make to fire Daryl Maury because of what he said in the tweet he put out about the Hong Kong movement. So I think he's safe. And ultimately, as time goes by, I think he'll get past this. I, I do think Daryl needs to do some kind of sit-down interview at some point to explain exactly what he was thinking and exactly kind of what was, you know, you know the, what the fallout's been like for him. But I think that's coming at some point. As far as LeBron goes, th that was just a whiff. I mean, I don't know. I'm not really unclear why he would take that tack. I mean, he had a week to 10 days to effectively think about how he was going to answer that question. And to suggest that Daryl Morey was not educated or misinformed on the topic, I, I think is crazy. I mean, you can say what you want about Daryl's position on all this, but Daryl's an extremely smart guy, Northwestern educated, MIT educated. He's the general manager of a team that is one of, if not the most popular teams in all of China. He knew exactly what he was doing. Now, we can debate why he did it, but the idea that he wasn't educated or he wasn't informed on the subject matter, that just doesn't resonate with me at all. And I think that was a big mistake. And it opened LeBron up justifiably to some of the critiques that, you know, he's okay saying stuff that don't affect his bottom line, but when it comes to the money he makes over in China, he caves on that issue. Chris, I'm so glad you just said that because that, that was my reaction to it. And by the way, I'm all about business, right? Like, I wouldn't say anything bad about China either. I, I, I get it. But it seems to me like the NBA in general and their players and some of their coaches, they love to get all of the plaudits they get when they stand up for certain causes, whether you call them human rights causes or political issues or whatever in the United States. But once it's something that is going to really negatively affect them financially – they clam up. Do you find that hypocritical or understandable or both? Well, look, I don't think that every athlete is obligated to weigh in on every issue. I think just because LeBron and Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr and others criticize Donald Trump or take stands on what happened with Trayvon Martin, I don't believe that obligates them to you know, to talk about Hong Kong and China or talk about Ukraine and Russia if they're ever asked about it. I think they should talk, talk about the things they know about and the things that they're passionate about. And those are two issues. The stuff domestically is certainly things that they're more passionate about. That being said, it's better to just say, I don't know enough about it. I hope things are resolved peacefully over there, but I don't know enough about it to ultimately comment. I think by wading in deeper, 
the way that James Harden did when he says, I'm sorry, China, and the way that LeBron did when he said Daryl Morey was misinformed or not educated on the topic. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. Now, the NBA, you know, the NBA loses money when it comes to China, but let's be clear. They don't lose a lot of money in context. The basketball-related income last year was over $7 billion. The money that comes in from China is right around $300 million. So we're really talking about that Gordon Gecko line of how many yachts can you jet ski behind when you're looking at NBA owners and what China money actually means to them. So it's, it's, it's a little easier for the NBA to take this stand because of all the money they have still coming in domestically. Got a glimpse at LeBron James last night with his new teammate, Anthony Davis, although it was against a Golden State team that no one would recognize. No Draymond, no Curry, of course, no Clay. My question is about all these new partnerships, AD and LeBron, Kawhi and George Harden and Westbrook. Which one of those new dynamic duos or perfect pairings do you have the biggest questions about coming into this new season? Oh, I don't think that. It's not so much about AD and LeBron working out, but the Lakers have more variants than any team in the NBA. I mean, the Lakers could wind up uh, competing for a championship in June, or they could miss the playoffs entirely. That, that's how that's how much variance they have. They have, I think, issues at the point guard position. Is Rajon Rondo going to emerge as the guy there? They have issues with perimeter shooting. How healthy is Kyle Kuzma going to be? Is Danny Green going to be enough out there on the perimeter? I think LeBron and AD are going to be terrific together. I mean, those are two guys that are elite at pretty much everything. And AD, I think, is going to compete for Defensive Player of the Year as well. It's just the guys around those two players that I have the biggest questions about. Can they get enough from the supporting cast to make the kind of run that they're expected to make in L.A.? So you think the Harden-Westbrook pairing can work? It can I think it has some certainly has some issues because these are not the same players that thrive together in Oklahoma City. These are the two two of the highest usage rate players in NBA history. I mean, these guys are both over the last four or five years used to having the ball in their hands a lot and making plays. That being said, I don't think they're going to have the kind of chemistry issues that players have when they're kind of thrust together, like Kyrie Irving in Boston or you know Kevin Durant early on in Golden State. These two guys really like each other and really wanted to play together. So I think their motivation to play together, I think will help them adjust early on. Chris Maddox from Sports Illustrated. Catch him on the Crossover Podcast, the SI Boxing Podcast, and also DAZN Boxing Coverage. Terrific to have you on this Thursday. Really appreciate the time, Chris. You got it, guys. Really good and insightful. Nobody covers the sport of boxing or the NBA, for that matter, better than Mannix Ross. Look, I'm not a huge boxing fan. I think I'm like you, a casual fan that might see, you know, one fight, maybe two fights a year. Clearly, something has to change, and it's going to have to be the promoters, the money in the sport, in less states, but only California, from Chris's reporting there, has stepped forward to do something about stopping this. You know, it's so interesting, Dave, because two thoughts on this, right? Number one, mm-hmm. can't remember what fight it was recently. I think it was Pacquiao Mayweather, you know, whatever that the big Mayweather fight was a few years ago. My buddy got on pay-per-view. I went there and was bored out of my mind because 
Mayweather doesn't get hit. He doesn't let you hit him, and he just kind of keeps jabbing you, jabbing you. But that wasn't entertaining to me. Like, that that wasn't enjoyable. I wanted action. I wanted punching. I wanted guys to get hit. Uh, on some level, it makes me feel a little guilty. And then hearing Chris tell the stories about Mayweather and Pacquiao and Oscar De La Hoya, you know, I have mixed emotions. Like, on the one hand, it makes me very sad. On the other hand, I'm glad they had the opportunity to totally change their lives. You know, and I, I yeah. witnessed that a lot from guys I played football with in the NFL that it was very clear that their entire family was counting on them to make it in the NFL, to make enough money to change the trajectory of their entire family. I was not in that situation, so I can't really put myself in that situation. But I love that we have these avenues for these guys. But especially on the boxing part of it, it makes me sad that that really is what they believe is their only chance. Yeah, sad for the Day family. And sad, frankly, for Charles Codwell. Uh, can't imagine what it'll be like for him to someday go back in the ring knowing his fist ultimately killed another fighter. He said he thought about quitting boxing, but said he doesn't think that's what Patrick Day would have wanted. Sad story. Great to have insight and analysis from Chris Mannix of Sports Illustrated. Quick break. Then we're going to earn you some money on this weekend's upcoming NFL and college football slate. Nick Costos from You Better You Bet right around the corner. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.